Computer, initialize Holosuite. Good evening and welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're beginning Season 3, Episode 1, The Search, Part 1. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That's exactly right, and you should find us and follow us because we are a great time. And as we enter into these new seasons of this awesome show, there's a lot of stuff you're going to miss out on if you're not following and following following along with us anywhere that you can listen to podcasts or Twitter or Facebook. So do so. Um, But as David said, tonight we are here to talk about the very first episode of Season 3. It's a great episode. I'm really excited and kind of feeling like I've been just waiting for this moment and finally we're here and I've been like, finally, finally we're getting into what I feel is the, the true story arc, the crux of deep space nine. I feel Ah. like it it begins at season three and we're finally here. (laughs) So I, I've been patiently waiting for us to get here for David's sake. Cause man, I would have rushed us through this so much, but (laughs) we're finally, finally here. Two seasons in and we're finally arrived. Yes, we're finally at those exciting points where I just, I, these are, seriously, this is the part, like, whenever I do a rewatch of the show, like, this is where I truly start to get excited, because this yeah. is the turning point for the show. It's little things at first, but then before you know it, it just steamrolls you right into a great storyline, but yeah, this kicks it off. Yeah, well, so. I mean, we haven't even recapped the episode yet, but I'll just go ahead and say it. You can tell that this episode got loving from the from the showrunners it's like we got the tng show wrapped up we can devote all of our time we -hmm. got big sets we got bombastic storylines right from the get-go season three opens up with a bang and i mean a bang bang boom or boom bang bang is that um i mean David, you are exactly right because (laughs) season three kicks off. This is the first of uh, of Deep Space Nine that runs without there being any other Trek in production at the time. Okay, right. and there were no TNG had already wrapped up in the season before. Voyager was still some ways distant, so this was the first chance for this show to really stand on its own. There was nothing else Trek yet. Next Generation's movie, Generations, was on the horizon. And it was actually coming out later in this same month that this season premiered. But as for on television, there was no Star Trek except for Deep Space Nine. And not only that, but the showrunner who had been, you know, the showrunner for seasons one and season two departed. And the showrunner from Next Generation came over and became the new showrunner here on Deep Space Nine. And it was none other than Ronald D. Moore, who we know and love from a lot of other sci-fi shows like Battlestar Galactica, the (laughs) reboot. So this is where he kind of began his, you know, uh, cutting his teeth on those grittier shows, the things that we now, that he's now synonymous for. And he's just famous for very complex storylines. 
he says that it was Deep Space Nine where he finally got the chance to, you know, kind of deliver on that, experiment right. with that a bit. Him and Ira Stephen Bear, um, who was the executive producer and, and developer for Deep Space Nine, right. really kind of let him go and do a lot here. So, again, you're right. Like, this this episode starts, it's got a completely different tone. The way the characters are portrayed, the information we get about the characters, everything has made a fundamental shift here. Right. And you can credit a lot of that to... Ronald D. Moore. All right. So, but we're going to get into all of that and so much more. There's a lot to unpack here with this episode. But before we do any of that, David, how was your week? Oh, it was <laughs> it was good initially. Like at work, it was a it was a good work week, and then last several days have been like dead. <laughs> so it's been like, uh, what happened? <laughs> uh, I guess it's just part of life. You know, things go up and down. Um, other than that, things are fine. Um, so the last episode of Westworld comes out this week. The last episode of the current season of uh, Only Murders in the Building comes out this week. I'm looking forward to the ending of both. Uh, I think Murder in the, Only Murders in the Building is... I don't think it's as good as season one, to be just frank. Uh, it's like they, you know, it's the same problem that a lot of things have. You know, the first season was new and interesting, and then they have to kind of force... This, the, a reason for the story to continue. And so this season feels more forced uh, than the first one did. There's there's one episode in season one of Only Murders in the Building. It's like episode six or seven, and I'm not going to say much more about it because I think I did talk about it when I first watched the season, and I don't want to say anything else, but it was a, it was a fantastic episode. And uh, they haven't had anything in this season, anything like that. And if anything, they've had some stuff that's been kind of annoying, like Amy uh-huh. Schumer shows up in episode two, not a fan of Amy Schumer. She uh, is like, she's like, it's like, she's portraying herself. And so she like makes a bunch of jokes that are her type of joke. And I just don't care for She was there and thankfully she hasn't really come back since. Um, but whatever. Uh, and then going on to Westworld. Westworld has, I think made the mistake of being more interested in plot than characters. And so while the plot is interesting, I don't care about the characters nearly as much as I did, again, like season one. Um, it's so a question about that real quick. Yeah. Do you feel like it's a way, kind of like a, almost like they're doing like a soft reboot of the series? Like, of and not necessarily, or? yes, of Westworld. Not necessarily to the point of like they're trying to redo their own story, but almost like they're trying to... Yeah, kind of do a, a, a soft reset. Like, they want you to have new characters, new people, and not be so concerned about what came before. Do you think that's why? No, you're, you're actually, in this season, they did some things that were callbacks to the first season that were actually great. Like, when they saw when I saw them, I was like, oh, yeah, that was... I'd like to see more of that. But um, let me put it this way. This season moves so fast. Like, the plot just goes, 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 that you don't have time to get to know the characters at all. Um, you have to, in fact, the story is actually relying on the, on the feelings you have for the characters from the previous seasons. Uh, they have said, you know, the characters already, we're not going to let you really spend a lot of time with them as individuals and like what they're currently dealing with as much as just move this plot. Um, and the plot is interesting, but because they move the plot so fast, you don't get time to really enjoy some of the, the darker elements. Like there's, there's some darkness in this season that um is kind of just skip past it's like oh we we have a, a time jump so the the ramifications of all these dark elements have already been experienced and therefore we're just 
left with like the aftermath. Um, so I, I mean, I'm still a fan of the show. I still will continue to watch it. They're going to have a, and this is not the finale of the entire series, you know, tomorrow night or whenever it comes out. It's just the season finale. I would imagine they're going to do one more, like have five seasons total. And that's where I feel like it should end. Cause at this point I just want them to wrap it up. I just want them to like, okay, mm-hmm. let's just, let's end this on a good note. Let's not drag it out. Um, and again, there were some elements I really liked, but uh, I feel like, let me put it this way. Like in the first season, there are 10 episodes and then like season three had eight and this season has eight, I think. And you can kind of feel like the budget was tightened for them. Like partially the episodes are shorter and it doesn't feel as big. Like the first season felt big. You feel like you are in a massive theme park. And even though we're out in the real world by season four, or at least partially, you don't feel the the, the, the large, you know, it doesn't feel as big. And that okay. suffers, unfortunately, for the, the show. Oh, and by the way, I've, I've been afraid to mention, Anthony Hopkins in season one steals it. That's part of the reason why season one is so great, because Anthony Hopkins is a master at his craft and that's the reason that season one works I mean, if everything else was was just there and falling apart anthony hopkins drags it along for you uh you know, he's amazing you know that speaks a lot uh you know, obviously about characters but also about certain actors you know there's another show that i had watched a while back and i i and blanking on the name, I believe it was something like true crime or something like that it was called but it was um it was a a series that the first season was set in like Texas, but it was in like the seventies and it had Matthew McConaughey in it. And he was one of the detectives and they were working and him and his partner were working this bizarre series of murders and true detective. Yeah. True detective. Yeah. And I mean, it was just like his performance, McConaughey's mm-hmm. performance at the whole thing was absolutely phenomenal. And I really right. feel like it just, it propelled the rest of the show. So then by season two, when season two came along and it was like, they were trying to do it again, but yeah, but the delivery was completely different and it missed all the high notes. And I watched it and I was thinking the same thing that, you know, like what you just said about Anthony Hopkins was like, man, Matthew McConaughey really did a lot of heavy lifting here for this show. Right. And without him, it's it's suffering. Yeah, I've heard that know. the second season of True Detective isn't nearly as good as the first. I've seen the first season, but I haven't watched the second one because I heard it wasn't as good as the first. And it, even and yeah. the, and I just have to say, like, I don't care for that type of dark t- storytelling. Like the idea there's like a cult and there's like people just like hurting people for no reason, stuff like that. So I like even the first season of True Detective was something that I more just kind of watched to like to, you know that I watched it. But I heard season two is like just not as good, and I totally agree. Matthew McConaughey, I mean, he's portraying a character over several decades, and you can, if you pay attention, you can tell how he changes as a character over these several decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's about fifteen years. Maybe it's more accurate, but um, yeah, it's and Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson's his partner. I was, yeah. I was sitting here trying to think of who the other person was. Yeah, and he's good too. But you're right; it's Matthew McConaughey in particular who is really uh, the standout. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, there are several shows that are like that, too, where, like, the first season just seems to be, it's so well done, and it's it's a complete story, beginning, middle, and end. And so then when they tell you there's even going to be a second season, you find yourself wondering, you know, what are you possibly going to give me as a second season? You've told a complete story in the first season. What am I looking, what, what do I be looking forward to in your second season? You know, I'm thinking, um, 
The Punisher is a show that was like that. The first season of yeah. The Punisher was was top notch. It yeah. was fantastic. And when it ended, I remember saying that. I think I actually said it to you, David. I was yeah. like, I don't know how they're going to do a second season. Yeah, we it talked was, about it. It was complete. Yeah, I, when I got coronavirus back in January, I watched the second season of Punisher, and I told you, I, I don't know if you've seen the second season of Punisher, not nearly as good. They have to just retread the first season. The second season is basically the villain gets out of you know, the hospital, because he's been declared insane, and, oh, well, we gotta take care of him again, but he's not the same villain, because he's not in power anymore, and the good, and, and Castle, actually, the first two episodes of season two of Punisher, season two, were actually good, because he's actually somewhere else, and he meets a woman, and he's connected with this woman, and then he gets dragged back to New York to go fight this villain from the first season, and it, it's never any good anymore. Like, just if they had just kept it going for the first two episodes and just kept that storyline going, as opposed to trying to, you know, again drag him back to New York and have him rehash the first season, <sighs> would have been much better. I, oh well. I think it's a recurring issue that I see in a lot of a lot of shows where you know, um, they it almost seems like they have this fear of truly progressing a story forward. You know, they recognize certain things are good and then they want to latch onto them forever and they just exhaust them. They absolutely exhaust them. I feel like they do that not just with shows like The Punisher, but also with several different movie franchises. Like, how many times are we going to see the origin story of Batman? How many times are we going to see the origin story of Superman? How many times Spider-Man? We can say this for all these characters over and over again, and I feel like that's why those franchises continuously fail. You know, right. you get you get some one-offs like, you know, what, what Nolan did for Batman was great, but, you know, the next iteration of Batman that comes out is not going to be a continuation of the storyline from where yeah. those movies stopped. Yeah. It's going to be another origin story of Batman. Yeah, did you see you the know? more recent one? It uh, has, uh, what's his face from the uh, Twilight movies? Um, I have not seen it. Um, what was his so, name? Oh, uh, look it up. I know it's... The the I know who you're talking about. We know the actor. I can't think of his name though. Yeah, um, that's um I don't Robert know. Pattinson, that is. There yeah. you go. It was it was okay. Uh it's it's very intense because it's kind of long. Uh, uh -huh. and, and they and actually I would say the first part of the movie was better than this than the the first half was overall better than the second half, in my opinion. because uh -huh. uh, the Riddler was actually he's actually well, doing riddles. Me. Well, it, say, it just, tell me. He doesn't do riddles much in the second half. I'm like, uh -huh. that's his that's his thing. Anyway, well, not that it's a spoiler or anything, but well, no, but I, 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 you know, people are always comparing, you know, the Marvel movies to the DC movies and why the DC movies always seem to do so poorly, and then inexplicably why, like, the DC animated stuff is leaps and bounds ahead of the Marvel yes. animated stuff, and then oh. their live action it's completely different. And I'm like, it, the glaring thing is, because everyone's like, well, it's it's, it's just because it's animated. That is not it. The right. thing to me that stands out as to why the animated stuff works is because the animation continues storylines and it yeah. presents new stuff whereas for some reason in marvel they don't really do that like from the few animated things of marvel that i've seen a lot of them are just kind of rehashing or retelling things that we just saw in the live action movie yeah. so there's no real interest there and continue because yeah. i mean we just saw it right you know um whereas the dc stuff it's i mean they just do they do everything i've seen batman you know, year one, I've seen old Batman, I've seen old Superman. I, you know, like, there's just so many different things that they've done with it that it keeps it interesting. Whereas yeah. their movies, it's like, nope, we're going to keep getting the same 
him discovering his powers and orphan and Kansas Smallville. Oh my yeah. God. I, yeah. I know it so well already. It's like, give me something more, right. something new and continue a storyline. Yeah. And maybe you can, you can make better movies. Yeah. I'm just going to uh, quickly just say that yeah, I, I, I recently, it was just online and so, I don't know how it came up, but someone was talking about how like the animated series was so good. And there's the one episode that stands out as a particular favorite of Batman fans from the, the justice league unlimited show. Whereas there's the girl ACE who can control reality uh-huh. and she's dying. And Batman yep. is given a device by Amanda Waller. The, the, you know, the kind of the suicide squad lady. Yeah. And she's like, you have to go, we have to kill her. Cause if she dies or like, she's having an aneurysm and this psychic explosion, blah, blah, blah. And Batman's like, I'll do it. And then he goes to the girl and he doesn't kill her. He just like stays with her as she dies. Like he, yes. she knows she's dying he knows she's dying. He just quietly holds her hand as she passes away. He doesn't try and comfort her in yeah. her grief. He when she's when she you know expresses her frustration and anger, he just says, "I understand." And it just yeah. Better it was, that's a better Batman moment than any action scene ever. That absolutely. is why Batman is great. Not because he can kick butt. He's great for that, but no, it's because he is compassionate in his awesomeness yeah well i thought you were going to go with another moment which actually exemplifies the exact same thing but it was from the 1994 series right. batman the animated series and that's with um dr freeze who of yes. course becomes mr freeze yes. and in this in that story it was just so sad because it's like he's this he's a villain and he's ruthless in his execution of his plan but then we uncovered the reasons why he's doing it it's it's not out of selfishness it's out of deep love for his wife and and even in the end when batman kind of you know discovers everything and realizes what's going on and sees a clear way to stop victor freeze he doesn't do it he's just like and at the end he tells him he's just like your wife is fine. She's still preserved. I didn't kill her. Right. I didn't end anything. And he's like, when you're ready, she'll be here. Right. And it was it was a great moment because like this whole ending, you suddenly go from, you know, hating Victor Freeze to really sympathizing for him and also being like, Batman just like he came out of nowhere with being going from also being ruthless to being completely compassionate and understanding and saving her rather than trying to kill her. Right. It was it was a great episode, and if you haven't watched it, you should you should go watch the whole series. That yeah. series is like I I don't even know how they got away with that series being as dark as it was as a kid show. Yeah, but man, it well, I mean it was really I feel, it was really gritty for a kid show. I yeah, well, that's I gotta say that's what I feel like we've kind of lost in our modern age is like we've just we've just lost the ability to like let me put it this way Looney Tunes the original Looney Tunes. Is so violent, just so oh, yeah. aggressively, just oh my Absolutely. goodness! Uh, it, it's hysterical because it's all you know comedic, and they know what it is. But when you think about it, like I watch it sometimes, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely horrific stuff that they're portraying as comedy. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of them. I, in fact, I was watching Tom and Jerry the other night with uh, my daughter, and yeah, I you know I grew up watching it. I was a kid watching it just like she is, you know. But now I'm watching it with her. They were two of the things. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like I didn't, I forgot that was in there, you know. And I was like, "We need to, we need to like rethink cartoons." And I was like, "Wait a second! I grew up watching these, and I'm fine." 
<laughs> so, but then I think I said I think that's probably what a lot of parents say is I mean I'm fine, but then it's like, are you really fine? Yeah. Like, how many things are you repressing right now in this moment? <laughs> and you can't. While you're... <laughs> and you can't tell because you're repressing them. Right. Yeah. Right. Like you know, so it's just there's a, I think there's a lot of that that happens, a lot of self realization, you know. But yeah, I mean, still, even with all that, I would still recommend. Batman the Animated Series. I would still recommend Gargoyles. That was another great one, which had some fantastic storytelling, also from the 90s. Right. Um, you know, but was definitely grittier, darker than a lot of stuff that I've seen as cartoons today. You know, again, with my daughter, you know, she watches a lot of different stuff, and I'm always checking to see what's what. Try my best not to totally interfere, or whatever, you know, because I want to have her develop that, you know, autonomy or whatever, but still checking it out. But I swear, these cartoons that they've got today, it's it's like cotton candy compared oh, to like the nails we were we were given. I know. When we're yeah. watching stuff. When so, I watch yeah, stuff, just... my my niece is four and she watches stuff on Disney Plus, for example. And I'm like, man, this is all cutesy and lovely and all that, but yeah. Man, it's just it's so <laughs> soft. It is the softest, marshmallowy, fluffiest nonsense. And I'm like, how can you how can you even watch it? It's just so inane. But I mean, there are so many kids who love it. So I'm like, hey, more power to you, I guess. I just fear that, you know, the first sign of adversity, and these kids are gonna just, you know, flit away in the wind because they've got <laughs> nothing to ground them at all. So man. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of the 90s, since we are here to talk about Deep Space Nine, before we get into our episode, finally, I know people are like, guys, if you're talking for 20 minutes, give us something. <laughs> before we totally get into it, there are some things about the 90s I want to help us set the scene, set the tone for this this season, all right? So right around the time this episode would have been coming out, Ace of Bass would have been the, the music of choice on your radio. They were number one. Um, in the United States at the time with their song, The Signs. So if you haven't heard it, go listen to it. You can just give yourself all kinds of nostalgia. Or if you're too young, just be like, I can't believe people listened to this back then. But they did. Um, also, Power Rangers was like the biggest show for kids anywhere. While we're talking about, again, <laughs> stylized violence. Yes. The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the original Power Rangers. This was their heyday. This was right. it. Apex television for children, the Power Rangers. Gotcha. But if you remember any of this, then like me, your Power Ranger watching would have been interrupted by O.J. Simpson and his infamous murder trial for Nicole Brown Simpson. And then, of course, the the white Bronco slow chase doing 65 down the highway. Chase, in quotation marks there, before he yeah. was ultimately arrested and then acquitted in the criminal trial but found guilty in the civil trial later right. um this was the same year that nelson mandela was elected president oh. in africa so we we yeah. got that as well and um for star trek as we said earlier the movie generations premiered in november of 94 so this season came out and it ran for the first i think 11 or 12 episodes and then right around that time was when generations was released in theaters right okay gotcha so we had a lot of stuff that was going on um as we can tell and also just for those of you who want to do the complete nostalgia thing do you know what um do you know what kid show came out the like the week before this episode aired 
No. The Magic School Bus. Oh my gosh, that was my show, man. Uh, right. Oh. It premiered for the first time. That was for my the first show. time. Like, you talk the about Magic School Power Bus. Rangers, and I'm like, that was too old for me. Man, Magic School Bus was my jam. I remember, okay, so when I was in elementary school, I was in elementary school with the same kids for first and second grade, and then went to a different school for a couple of years, private school, and then went back to public school again uh, for middle school. And there was this one kid who didn't recognize me. I introduced myself again to him. He was like, oh, you're that kid who loved the Magic School Bus. <laughs> That's how he knew me. And I went and saw the, uh, like, there was a stage play at some point where they, like, had, you know, live actors, you know, like, young 20-somethings dressed up as the kids. And they did some sort of show. And, of course, I was mad because part of the cast wasn't there. Like, they didn't have a full Magic School Bus cast. It was like, someone's not here today or something like that. But, um but yeah, no, that was my jam, man. That was my show. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, re- I was a fan of the Magic School Bus, too. I remember watching it. I don't remember if I was there for the launch of the very first episode. Right. But I do know that um, once it was on, it, that theme song just got me through. Magic like that, bus. Yeah, that had me hooked, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we had the Magic School Bus. We had Power Rangers. Um, also... The very first episode of Friends aired the following oh, week of wow. this episode. Yeah. Damn. So we had a lot of great um, like television programming, but we also had like a lot of great movies and stuff that came out as well. Right. So this is what was like, to me, thinking about it, a lot of great movies that we think of truly as classic movies all came out around this time period. So like, just to give you a, a quick snippet... In 1994, these were the top movies of 94. The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, so good. Forrest Gump. Yep, classic. The Lion King. Ah, don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) The the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. I think every kid watched that movie at some point in school. You had Pulp Fiction. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yep. Okay, um... And of course, you know, you had movies like Dumb and Dumber and <laughs> and True Lies. These were all top movies yeah. of the time of that of that year. That uh. year. So like so many great movies that are now they're just they're done over and over again. There's been so many, you know, I mean they haven't touched Shawshank Redemption and Forrest Gump yet, but I'm well, sure Shawshank it's coming. Shawshank Redemption, last I heard, it was still the number one rated movie on IMDb. Uh IMDb top rated movies. I think it'll come up. Let me just a quick second here. Top 250. Yep, number one, Shawshank Redemption. Godfather's it's, number two. It's a fantastic movie. Oh, it really is. And, and yeah, and I mean, again, 1994 was like the time for just great movies. And the world, the 90s really had like a kind of like their own kind of golden bubble of movies. A lot of great stuff came out during the 90s. Right. But these, of course, coincided with what we're doing here now. So that's why I wanted to bring them up. But yeah, I mean, I just remember so many, like just all, just always hearing about new movies. Clear and Present Danger was another one yeah. with, with Harrison Ford. It was another one that came out. It's just great stuff that um, we still watch today and still hold up today. Yeah. You can watch Shawshank Redemption tonight and it yes. will still be an impressive movie. Oh. You can watch... True Lies, Clear and Present Danger, Forrest Gump, all those movies, still great films. They yeah. don't seem dated at all. There's nothing really in them that would make them seem like they're totally out of touch. 
you know, it, you have a little bits of nostalgia. Like, I'm sure you'll see somebody use a payphone or they'll go to a gas station and gas will be like 89 cents a gallon. And you'll right. be like, what? what is that myth? Right. <laughs> right? But well, other than one, that. One thing. So Forrest Gump is number 11 here on IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, or at least the user ratings. Uh, but yeah, uh, Forrest Gump is, is kind of a fascinating movie because, like, for me... You know, I was born in 90, so watching a movie like Forrest Gump allows me to kind of get some context for, like, the history that that show – or that movie is all about. That movie is about all the history that Forrest Gump experiences. Like, I wouldn't have really understood some of that stuff. Uh, right. I think a lot of people today, a lot of young kids, like, you would need to watch something like Forrest Gump to, like, get an introduction to, like, what was the Vietnam War? What was uh, – uh, all these presidents, uh, um, the the march on Washington, uh, all that stuff. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, It'd be a great a great film, especially for like students who may be going down that track of being like history majors, things like that. That would be a great movie to to watch and reference because it does cover so many different key historical points up to the nineties. Because that's where the movie ends. It's with Forrest in you know, present day, right. you know, times. So yeah, it would have been a complete history from what the sixties when he was born up to the nineties when he's an adult and, and everything else. So yeah, I mean, it covers, like you just said, the Vietnam war, it covers the AIDS pandemic. It, it covers a lot of stuff in yeah. that movie. So yeah, great film to watch that again came out in 94. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we're gonna keep talking about all different history things, of course, but we do need to get to the story of the hour, really, <laughs> and that is that is the search from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine's first episode of season three. Yeah. So, David, do you want to give the recap, or do you want me to do it? Oh man, I can do it. I feel like I don't remember who's who's up now. Uh, how, what do you what do you think? You want to do it? I think I think I need to do it. Yeah, I think it's been a while. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah, man, do it. All right. So, again, really excited about this episode. Um, this one starts off with um, pretty much everybody in Ops. The only person missing is Cisco. Yep. And they're all talking about, you know, recent developments. And they've been running some battle drills. And they realize that pretty much no matter what they do, the, sis, the, the station is doomed, basically. If the Dominion, and and the if the Dominion ever attacked. showed up. Yeah. Right. If there, if there was ever a Dominion attack, the station just wouldn't last. So while they're debating things they could do, talking about running simulations again, all that other kind of stuff, all of a sudden an alarm goes off and there seems to be an anomalous energy source that is really, really close to the station. It's well within the shield perimeter. This freaks everybody out because they're like, how the heck did it get that close? Uh, they're doing their scans. They're trying to figure out what it is. And all of a sudden it decloaks and hails them. Answer the hail, it's Commander Sisko on yeah. what appears to be a weirdly designed Federation ship. And he tells him the ship's name is Defiant. He's brought back something for the Dominion in case they decide to come through the wormhole and raise any hell. Right. So then he, the next scene is everybody meeting in the wardroom. This is the first time we actually see the wardroom, kind of the equivalent of Next Generation's, you know, briefing room, conference room, where the officers used to sit around. But we'd never really seen that before on Deep Space Nine until now. Okay. And Cisco is kind of laying out for them what the Defiant is. It was a prototype warship um, that was built to fight and defeat the Borg when the Borg were becoming a real big threat at right. the time. 
Um, but then, of course, the Borg issue was less pressing. Because of that, they decided to scrap um, any further production on or development of the Defiant. And not just because of the Borg threat becoming less pressing, but also because the Defiant has a lot of issues. Right. It, um, As Cisco puts it, it's overpowered for its size. And he says that the engines nearly shook the ship apart when they tried to test them at full power. Kira is upset that this is the ship that they sent, but Cisco's like, no, I'm vouching for the Defiant because this this ship's got got power. It's got teeth, as he says. Right. You know, so he's basically counting on them, mainly O'Brien, fixing the bugs in the ship and letting them use this as a way to um eventually track down the leaders of the Dominion. Right. With the Defiant also comes two new officers. One is a security officer named Michael Eddington and another is a Romulan officer named Tarot. Yeah. Tarot is there because again, the Defiant has a cloaking device. They've borrowed it from the Romulans who have agreed that Romulan interests will be served by allowing them to put this cloaking device on a Federation ship and it can only be used in the Gamma Quadrant. Right. That is significant. Can't use it anywhere else, just in the Gamma Quadrant. Right. All right. So they get to work trying to fix all the bugs or whatever else. Um, unfortunately, during this uh, briefing in the wardroom, Odo is relieved of his duties as security officer for Federation Starfleet Matters. Right. This upsets Odo, who says he's going to resign instead. Right. So he leaves. Um, now they turn their attention back to getting the Defiant ready. Kira's trying to figure out what's going on with Odo and trying to help him out, but he's not being altogether communicative and then she arranges for him to have a way to come with them on their mission to the Gamma Quadrant if he so chooses. Right. They work out the bugs, they get set to leave. Just before they leave, Odo shows up and says, yeah, I'm coming. They welcome him on board and off they go. Don't forget, they... Quark is also uh Oh, yes. Can't forget, Quark is made to go because before he left uh, Starfleet headquarters, Cisco met with the Grand Nagus and essentially figures out a way to blackmail Quark into going. Yeah. Complete with the scepter of the Grand Nagus, which he makes Quark kiss. Which is great. Um, <laughs> which is great, but... On a side note, it should be noted that the actor, Armin Shimmerman, did not like that scene. He felt like it was belittling Ferengi, and he they said that there was some difficulty in him filming it, but he got through it. But just so you know, he didn't like it. So, gotcha. Interesting. We'll have to talk about yeah. that more, but keep going. Yes. So, they go through the Gamma Quadrant, they go through the wormhole, end up in the Gamma Quadrant, they decide to make contact with another alien species who is tied to the Dominion, known as the Karma. This is the first time we see the Karma, although it's not the first time we've heard of the Karma. If you remember, when Quark went through the wormhole to establish the Tulaberry wine trade with the Dozai, the Dozai told them that there was another group that was also doing this trade and had ties with the Dominion, and that was the Karma. That was the first time we heard the Karma mentioned there. Now we get to see them all these months later. The Karma explained that they do have ties with the Dominion, and they basically are just like, we just do whatever the Dominion tells us. Because if you don't, then the Jem'Hadar show up, and then you die. Yeah. So he's like, we haven't been told to help you, so I'm not going to, you know... I'm not going to. Right. And they're like, well, you haven't been told not to help us either. And he's like, yeah, but err on the side of caution here. Right. 
So again, they kind of blackmail him, basically being like, if you don't do what we say, we're going to cut off your your selling of Tulaberry wine to the Alpha Quadrant. This may, you know, cause the Dominion to come after you anyway. So he turns over what little information he has, which directs them to a a, relay a complex a relay station where they have been sending uh, communiques to the Dominion. He's like, after they get there, we don't know what happens to him. We're just told, send everything there. Right. So off they go. On their way, um, and they're cloaked, of course, they do run into a couple of Jem'Hadar ships. They slow down in order to hope that the Jem'Hadar ships pass them by. They start to pass by. One of the ships turns around, comes back, does some scanning, and is they're basically like, there's something here. Right. O'Brien alerts them that it's perhaps because, again, the Defiant is overpowered. Right. So the ship is generating way more power than perhaps it should be, so they cut main power in order to just eliminate any other energy signature and then this seems to work and lets them go on about their business right the the um dominion depart and then the defiant continues right they reach the relay station o'brien and um dax beam down and they begin doing their search for where the you know, where the Dominion may be located beyond this relay station. Right. They're able to find this information and they transmit it back to um, the Defiant, but this sets off a security alarm, which causes the connection to O'Brien and Dax to be severed, and they seem to be trapped in the relay station. Right. This also sends out an alert. The Dominion ships are now on their way back, and there's no time to really rescue them. They could do it, but it might end up exposing them, which could cost them the whole mission. Bashir and Tarul get into an argument on the bridge about whether they should stay and rescue their officers or not. Cisco makes the call to leave them behind because the mission is more important than these two officers. And so off they go, but doesn't sit right with anybody. Right. Um, after that, uh, Cisco tries to call Odo to the bridge. Odo is not having it. He's just kind of blows him off. Cisco's about to go down and um, talk with him when Kira interrupts. Now it should be noted that Kira did come to Cisco earlier, expressing her concerns about um, Odo. And basically Cisco says that he wants Odo to stay, but Odo has to also want to stay. So when Odo kind of blows off Cisco about coming to the bridge, this is kind of one of those moments where Kira feels like she needs to step in as his friend and kind of get him to come up there. She goes down, she meets with Odo. Odo is, you know, he's all distraught and he's telling her that, you know, he needs to leave now. Ever since coming into the Gamma Quadrant, he's been feeling like he's being pulled somewhere and now he knows where this this nebula called the Omarian Nebula that was pointed out to them by their Karma ambassador when he was there. Right. Um, he wants to leave right now. Kira's like, slow your roll. We need to figure out some other stuff first before you do that. He's not really having it. He's ready to go now. Right. They get into an argument, and before it's resolved, the ship comes under attack. Apparently, those um, Dominion ships that had scanned them earlier had come back because they obviously received the notice from the relay station. Right. They seem to have had time to analyze their scans and realize that there is a cloaked ship. 
there that's causing the anomalous energy reading. They attack the um, Defiant and end up boarding the ship. And there's hand-to-hand combat on multiple levels on the bridge and the hallways, so forth and so on. The ship gets badly beat up. And the last thing we see is Kira and um, Odo fighting. Kira gets knocked out. When she comes to, she's in a shuttle with Odo. Odo tells her that the ship seemed to be, you know, just in complete distress. He's not sure what was going on with everybody else. He put her in a um, in a shuttle, and they left. She's thinking they're on their way back to Deep Space Nine, and he's like, uh, no, we're actually on our way to that old uh, nebula that I was so fascinated <laughs> by. She gets upset with that, but it's pretty much too little too late. They're there. Right. They find this rogue planet hidden away in the nebula, and they beam down. They get down there, and there's this nice glowing pool, which all of a sudden, life forms start popping up out of it, doing their little shape-shifty thing. And then all of a sudden, we're surrounded by a bunch of shapeshifters who look like Odo, but, you know, there's a bunch of male and female equivalents, right? Yeah. And now we realize that Odo has found his home planet and his and his people. Yay. And that's <laughs> a, that's where the episode ends. That is essentially it. Do yeah. you feel like I missed anything? Did I hit all the right notes here for you? We just quickly point out that Quark, after he talked to the ambassador, uh, the the one guy about the tulipberry wine, he insisted that he be allowed to leave the ship and go back to the planet, back to Deep Space Nine, find a way back to the Gamma Quadrant on his own. So Quark is currently not with our crew anymore. Um, but yes, everything else, the Defiant was effectively destroyed, or at least seems to be utterly destroyed last we see of it. And all we know is that Odo and Kira have somehow managed to escape to, it seems to be, Odo's homeworld. Homeworld. So, yeah. So, what a thing for the Defiant to show up, and in its first outing, yes! gets blown yes! to bits. Wow, I was uh, so surprised, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, now we don't know that it's been completely destroyed. We just sure. know that it was severely damaged. And the last and, and, and Cisco yeah. was saying everyone get to escape pods. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that's when they were being boarded by a bunch of Jim Hadar and having to fight it out. And We yeah. had some nice hand-to-hand combat moments there um, on the bridge, you know. And I will note that while everybody else was fighting hand-to-hand, to rule our one Romulan officer, she's, she's like, the only one who fires a phaser. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's the only one. Everybody else is like, nah, we're we're punching, we're doing all this stuff, and here she comes shooting people Why and stuff. So, <laughs> right, am I the only armed officer around here? What's your new security officer Eddington doing? Yeah, apparently getting his butt kicked because he couldn't even draw a phaser in time. <laughs> I mean, sometimes Starfleet security is like wholly useless, yeah. and he just does nothing. Was he the guy who was dead that you know Bashir puts his hand to his neck briefly and says he's gone? Is that him or is that just some other guy? That was somebody else. Okay, that I figured it was somebody else. else, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that real quick. You know, the idea that Odo was being sidelined by the federation that you know uh cisco says that the federation has always been displeased with odo he doesn't respect authority Mm -hmm. he doesn't respect the rules he doesn't respect the chain of command when you know federation's all about chain of command and and cisco says i'm all about the chain of command uh but i still want odo i still he's he even calls him constable even after he's been quote-unquote fired slash resigned and he comes to the ship and he's in the airlock and he says, can I help you, Constable? And he's like, I request permission to come aboard. So as far as Cisco's concerned, their relationship is still there. Um, 
so yeah, it's yeah. important to note that Cisco does not fire him. Yes. Odo offers up his his resignation, but Cisco never fires him. When he right. chased after Odo after the meeting in the wardroom, right. he tells him he is still in charge of security for the station right. and for everything else that's going on there. Because for one, Odo is not a Federation citizen, nor is he a Federation officer in any way. He is a Bajoran officer, and as far as we know, he's a Bajoran citizen. Right. So, so everything he does is kind of on the same par as with with Kira, where he falls into the command structure a bit. Right. They're they're the Federation are more like liaisons. They're trying to bring the the Bajorans into the fold. Right. Their military, their policing, all that stuff needs to be brought into the Federation. Right. So yeah, they can't totally cut him out. And he tells them, "You're in charge." And then when it comes to matters that involve Starfleet, you have to coordinate with Eddington. This is also not the first time that this has happened, and Odo has been told this, and he tried to resign earlier. If you remember, in yeah. the, one of the best episodes ever, Move Along Home, <laughs> we had Starfleet Security <laughs> Officer Primin, who was there. Why did you have to mention that episode? <laughs> I told you that episode is never going away. You just uh, might as well accept it. We will find ways to bring it back to I relevance. I swear I've tried burning it from my memory. <laughs> No, I, I will not let you. But yes, <laughs> even in that episode, it was the same deal. Primin had already been told that he must coordinate and work with Odo. Right. And then, you know, Odo at first had accept, had tried to resign. But Cisco told him then that he was in charge. Right. Now, here we are, flash forward. It's been a couple of years. And basically, Starfleet is saying, nope, yeah. No dice. Even Cisco says, I took this to the head of Starfleet herself. Right. And she said, no. The security this, this person. Yeah. yeah head of Starfleet that. security. She said, no. Right. So it's not that Cisco is like, yeah, he's not following the rules. He's not a part of our chain of command, blah, blah, blah. I don't want him. Cisco right. is being told this. So, you know, some of this, it seems like, is Odo's fault. If he would just, you know, kind of fall in line here a little bit. Right. He can make things a lot easier on himself, but he chooses not to. He, as much as he laments being an outsider, it's almost like part of him enjoys it, and he right. doesn't want to be folded in like everybody else. Right. Yeah, it's it's actually a great great scene because Odo realizes what's happening. He says, uh, you know, Cisco says you have to coordinate with the other guy, and, that, and Odo's like, that basically means I have to report to him. So it's not that I'm working with him, I'm his underling, and I'm, I'm not going to take him. Yeah, it's Odo is not a, you know, take a, a sub subordinate position. Either he's there and he's in charge, or he's not, and he's not doing any half measures. Which you know, it just it just makes Odo a great character because he'll make those hard, tough decisions. He's not a character who's going to him and haw and be, you know, right. complain about it or make a bunch of you know whiny noises. I mean, he'll be he'll complain. But he's not going to complain in order to, like, force someone to change their mind. Like, nope, I, this is how I choose to do this. If you don't like that, it's too bad. Like, I, if, if this is how it's going to go. This is how it's going to go. Um, and so it also sets up the, the whole, you know, when he comes to the ship, like, oh, great, the whole cast is here, but what is he doing? Um, and then the idea that he was actually, he's being drawn. Like, something's drawing him. And, oh, finally we get to find out more about him and his changeling um, uh, species, or at least I hope we will. Uh, I imagine we'll learn a lot more next episode. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, Odo is a great character. Again, I know why you like him so much, and this was a, an episode to explain more about why. Yeah. 
So as another side note, a little backstory here, the actor who plays Odo, René Abergenois, actually initially hated the premise of finding out more about Odo's origins yeah. and family. Right. He felt that by by taking away that mystery, that it would make Odo a bit more mundane yeah. and it would make it a bit harder for him to find new and complex ways as an actor to... Um, portray the character right he didn't want the character to become kind of like the others right. you know to a certain degree um so when this storyline was was started he um when this storyline was started they basically had to tell him a lot of the development right. in order to get him on board okay with with doing more of this story okay all right okay yeah, I, I will say when it turns out that the first changelings, again, assuming they're changelings, we don't know anything, any details yet, but when they come out of the pool and they start forming and they make faces that look just like his, I did think in the moment that um, I was like, well, I mean, they look so much like him, but he was someone who was supposedly spent all this time working to get his features as close to resembling humanoid as possible, you know, his ears and his cheeks. And yet when the woman like comes up to him, she looks almost like him exactly. So part of me was like, well, if I remember how Odo has come into being as a character, he was someone who, you know, had to work his way to becoming like this. And then for her to be able to reproduce his features almost exactly, it's like, wait a minute, is Odo actually doing the features as his people would do them? Or are they reproducing his features the way he's doing them to them? So it felt a little weird in the moment. Mm -hmm. I felt like, I would imagine so, that as changelings, they could do so much that for them mm -hmm. to just appear as humanoid and even so closely humanoid as him felt a little strange. But again, we just met them, so I'm sure we can. There's chances for us to find out more. So, so because I already know what's going to happen, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this one. We never find out the answer to that question. Fair enough. I mean, um, if anything, it's just a. It's we are changelings. This is Odo's people. It's easy for us to represent that as a cast and crew of the show yeah. by just having the so, actors wear similar prosthetics. That's correct. the answer. Yeah. So basically, the there's a lot of theories that circulate around that, and one that seems to have the most acceptance is basically when Odo showed up on the planet, he is instantly recognized as one of them. Yeah. And in order to make him feel comfortable, they mimicked his appearance. That's that's so, what I would imagine is the proper in-universe explanation. Right. So even though that is never expressly explained. That is kind of the consensus that over the years has generated from this, is that it right. was an attempt to make Odo feel instantly at home, a connection that these are his people. Right. That was what was, that was the point. Right. And again, I, I, I want to be very clear. I feel like that is the explanation that makes sense in the yeah. storyline. Um, trying to find the picture I saw. Yeah, it, it totally, but... it totally works. But um, like I'm saying, I, I'm just saying there's, there's never been a clear explanation for that. Um, it's just something that over time has been discussed and asked at conventions and all that kind of stuff. And that's just kind of been the assertion everybody's gone with based on the actors and the writers and everybody else kind of filling in the gaps behind the scenes. I'm trying to remember, I think even the clothes that she wears look like his clothes. Like it's, well, they're they're a, 
I guess it's a similar style in the sense that it's very plain, right. but it's a different color. His stuff is brown. Right. Hers is more like a pinkish salmon-y color, right. and they're all wearing that same color that she's got on. So yeah, where that where true. they chose that color from, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you could say that it's a combination of Kira's uniform and Odo's uniform. They put it together, and it kind of gives this Jake is secretly weird... the wardrobe coordinator yeah. for the changelings, even. <laughs> this weird puce color it's awful yeah um but yeah um there's yeah that's right they took a a cue from whoever it is that designs clothes for for jake and just said nah we just it's all one just one terrible color what have you got <laughs> and they're like here you go yeah so yeah. salmon color is a, definitely a choice i'll tell you that um, yeah it's a choice it's a it's the wrong choice <laughs> but it's a choice Speaking of Jake. I was going to say, speaking of Jake, yeah. we, got a, we got a great scene from the Cisco, so uh, our other show within the show. I know I've said it here. a million times. Surak Lofton is the best son character as an actor. He looks like Ben I was Cisco say, so much. They're the same height now and everything. I was going to say, they look they look so similar. Now that, now that Jake is growing up more, he's a bit more mature, you know, he looks like him. I'm like, yeah. I, you, I, you know, you do have to wonder, like, who... That was a genius move when y'all cast him. Like, I, I just wondered, did he even have to audition, or did he just walk in the room and they're like, no, right? He's it. Just sign him up. Avery he looks- Brooks, do you have some history in the past that right. you can tell us do about? You, do you know him? Like, what's going on? Because he does look so much like him. Now, again, you know, uh, a good haircut and lighting can do a lot for somebody, but he, and even now, yeah. he looks a lot like Avery Brooks. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did a phenomenal job with casting on yeah. with uh, Ciroc Lofton. Yeah. Do you want to recap the scene? It was the one scene oh, you kind of so missed. It's a, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a know, small one, but yeah. But still, you know, they're in their quarters, and apparently they've just, like we've seen, they've just returned from Earth. Um, that's where Cisco got the Defiant. And Jake is in their quarters just wolfing down uh, some pudding, Idanian spice pudding, mm-hmm. I believe. And, uh, you know, Cisco's talking about how, yeah, he just couldn't wait. And he tried to order it back when they were on Earth, but nowhere apparently made it right. He couldn't get a decent bowl, right. is what Jake said. So now he's home, he's comfortable, he's eating his favorite food. He's just like any other kid. He just couldn't wait to get home and get to his favorite meal. Right. And so then they're, you know, he's, he's, they're unpacking and they make the mention of now that they're home and Cisco's just like, when did that happen? When did I start thinking of this Cardassian monstrosity as home? Right. And Jake's like, I think it was 0800 a couple weeks ago when you took this stuff out of storage. Right. And they, and it's a collection of um, ancient African masks. Right. And it's apparently a collection that is very prized to yeah. Cisco. 2000 years old. Apparently. Yes. And he has and he has held on to these masks and kept them in great condition and in storage. And as Jake says, these were always in your library at home. And so I always thought of that as home. And so now that you've brought them here, that says to me, this is home. Right. And so it's a nice touching moment as we're looking at a transition from here was this officer who when we first met him was really quirky. He had he was PTSD like crazy, um, struggling with the position and everything else, and now he's calling it home. He's decorating. He's hanging up his prized possessions and the transition, even the lighting in the room. Like remember when we first came season one into the Cisco's quarters, how dark everything is. <laughs> now in this one, everything is like it's lit up. It's like it's gray, sure. The walls are gray, but there's a 
there's a liveliness to everything. There's there's color in the room from the decorations and stuff. It looks homey. Right. And it was a great scene between the two of them. And it's like Cisco's realizing not only is it home, but he's looking at his son differently too. You know, it's just a great touching moment. Once again, these two never fail to deliver. When we have yeah. the Cisco's, they just always are so great together. Yeah. I really love are. seeing their family dynamic. I really do. Yeah, if there was any complaint I would have almost about the last episode of the last season, seasons two finale, you know, it starts off with them, you know, going on vacation, and then they bring on Rom or is it Rom? Yeah, yeah, and then Nog, Nog, Nog it is. and there you go. Quark. Yeah, it's Nog, and then it's Quark. It's like, nah, I just want the father son to have a have a you know a science experiment out in space right. together kind of episode. Um, just the two of them getting some shenanigans. Why do we got to drag everyone else along? And then, you know, that episode, like, ratcheted up the tension to, like, a million degrees within, like, 20 minutes. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, the Cisco's from the beginning, they were great, and they just continue to deliver. Um, yeah, yeah, great. great yeah, they're pretty moment. solid. They yeah. stay pretty solid, and they've, they've been that way consistently. You're right. Even from the beginning, when you weren't really sure about what else was going on with the other characters, watching the scenes with those two, always, I felt like that got you more interested in Cisco and Ben Cisco um, than anything else. Because when we first see him, again, he's he's so he seems so strange, and then of course he he rails against Captain Picard, you know, they have that infamous tension moment and everything else. But then we see him with his son and they're like sitting on that dock in the holodeck and they're doing the little fishing thing. And he's just, he's completely natural. He's so tender and loving with his son, you right. know? And then even when they move into their quarters, you know, and Jake is complaining about everything. O'Brien is standing right there. Yeah. And Cisco goes from like talking to him and giving him orders and I need this done and, and all that kind of stuff to suddenly he's, with Jake, and it's just it's just them. They are the only two in the room, as far as he's concerned. Yeah. I love seeing that, like the the total a hundred percent focus that Ben gives his son. He gives him that attention, no matter what, you right. know. And it doesn't interfere with his work. It doesn't take away from him being the station commander or anything like that. Right. But it just shows that I feel like he's a man with a clear understanding of his priorities, and his son is always at the top, and that is great. Right. That's that's fantastic. Right. To me. Yeah. Yeah, it was it's really good. And um I guess on the same or similar note, I feel like and we talk about Jake's costumes all the time. I just like it seems like everyone got a glow up this season. Yeah. Everyone did. Dax, uh what's the actress's name? Hold on. Terry uh, Farrell. Terry Farrell, like her hair seems more thick and luscious. Everyone's <laughs> got a new like suit on. Like even Odo looks sharp. It's like yeah, TNG are, being done was the best thing that ever happened to this show. You are absolutely <laughs> correct. This episode does mark a huge change for a lot of the actors. Their yeah. uniforms their uniforms were cut differently yeah. at the beginning of season three. Terry Farrell's hair is up in this kind of tight do, not a bun, but just yeah. like it's something else that kind of pulls away from that. Uh, she had like a ponytail in the yeah. first two seasons, you right. know. Um, but yeah, the uniforms are cut different. The makeup for Odo is now done differently. Um, ah, in fact, is. yes. In fact, the makeup that they used for Odo and the, the face mask and all that stuff that they did for him um, was actually seen in the crossover episode that we watched with the Intendant. Um, oh. that, well, that was when it was first seen. It was a new technique that they tried. And 
uh, Renee loved it so much, he campaigned for them to bring it back, and they weren't able to do it until season three. Great. So that's from a great season way three to, on, that's a, great to, that's a great way to test it. Or in an alternate universe, so it's Odo, but different, and you can mm-hmm. maybe visually tell because the makeup's a little bit different. Like, I didn't know that until you said it, but that's a perfect way to test it. You know, we're in an alternate universe. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's how that's how we got it. Renee, then, Renee, Renee loved it. Yeah, um, I'm I'm assuming that he doesn't. They don't really go into detail as to why he loved it, but I'm going to assume that he loved it because it was probably easier for him to get on and take off. Oh, I'm sure that's it. Yeah, if it took anything more than like an hour or two to get on originally, yeah. yeah. I'm imagining that's what it was, and it looks it. I mean, it's it's smoother. It also like makes a lot of the skin tone and everything else on him even, you know, and he doesn't seem as pale either. So hmm. it worked. It definitely makes him seem more like flesh toned and, right. and realistic. And um, yeah, gotcha. but I'm thinking it was probably a lot easier for him to get into and out yeah. of. So that's why they did it. And on that point, like I can tell in this one episode, they spent more money on sets on this episode than like the first two seasons, like, in any episode in the first two seasons, it was like they were going on what they had. They they did what they could. This one, we got a whole new ship with its own bridge, and they destroy it in the same episode. We got the wardroom. Like, I didn't even really think about the wardroom until you started talking about it just in the recap. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that was a whole new room. Like, yeah, because if you think about it, every time they had meetings, they were in ops. Yes. And everybody sat around that little dais right yes. there, and Cisco oh, was so... up on the steps, you know? Yeah. And, and then they now they're in the wardroom, and they well, have a great table. That table yeah. is beautiful. Love that table. Yeah, well, it, it's like, you know, I was just saying in our recap in our, in our episodes uh, about season two, and like, what would I want for season three? It's like, they were taking notes, and they were like, yeah, we're going to bring them a <laughs> ship, we're going to give them a, 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 a ready room, we're going to... We're going to do all signs of things in the, not ready room, but you know, the, the conference table type room. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very pleased to now, see all that. Um, now that TNG was over, they freed up some funds. Exactly. And, could, and they were just like, we know there's a movie in production, but let's yeah. let's fix our set as much as possible. Right. Now that we've got some extra money, again, fix our set. Again, blow up the ship for the, the, the Defiance. Like, yeah. I really... I. The idea that they would have this this spaceship that was kind of secret, and it's all they have to really spare for the station, and Cisco has it, and he kind of fought for it, and then, like, part of me is like, well, the the the, the crazy nut job, you took it and ran straight into the wormhole with it and got it destroyed, <laughs> but then you know that scene with with Dax where she's like, you're the one who wants to make the decisions, you want to be there. You're not going to sit back and just Oh, like, yeah, great scene. Yeah. like Talking it, about what Curzon used to think of Cisco. Yeah. yeah, and it actually makes sense that, well, actually, no, let's go to the Gamma Quadrant, take this new ship, and let's let's get kind of aggressive. Not military aggressive per se. I mean, they kind of do. I mean, they do break into yeah. that one relay station. But, like, let's go find the founders. Let's go talk to the top, like, the, the head, head honchos of the Dominion, Work out something right away. Let's let's not wait for them to come through the wormhole and, and destroy us. Let's let's figure this out right here and now. Um, it actually kind of makes sense. It's it's risky and it does backfire pretty hard, uh, as they actually point out. You know, Dax and 
Cisco and they're talking about their chances of success and they've done simulations, you know, 200 simulations and their chance of success is, is very slender, but it's better than if they just wait for the Dominion to come destroy the station. Wait and do nothing. Yeah. Which is, again, it fits into who Cisco is as a person, which is right. really what Dax was telling us the whole time. Right. This is who you are. This is, and you know, and I want, another thing I love about that scene and also how it ties into the defiant and everything else is, you know, she's talking about how Cisco, he's, he's way more hands-on. And if you can think back all the way to season one, what did we find out about Cisco when he met with Picard? Um, what, what Cisco says is basically he had been working at the Utopia Planitia uh, shipyards right. before they called him to go to Deep Space Nine. What do they do at Utopia Planitia? They build and design ships. Here he goes all the way back to Earth and gets the Defiant. <laughs> there is no way. I, I've always believed that he had been instrumental in helping uh, develop the work that up. Ship. Yeah, the yeah. work up, the development of the Defiant. And I think it was one of those things that like just kind of stayed with him in the back of his mind. Yeah, like, that makes as they sense. said, Starfleet doesn't make warships, but here was a man who had just lost his wife to the Borg. The Borg threat was all he was thinking about. He's working in the shipyards. Right. Of course he would have been designing a warship. He was so And one that rage. was so overpowered that it would yes. destroy itself. Like, yeah, his rage is like, he, damn the torpedoes. Exactly. Ahead. This ship is. Suicide run if necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This ship is Cisco. In, in ship form. Right. He's he at the time when he was designing it, he was full of rage. He just wanted to strike back. He didn't care if he lived or died. His whole point was going there and just blowing shit up. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. <laughs> and this was this was the design that he came up with. And then of course he says that the Borg threat became less pressing. Why? Because well, the, we know the Enterprise took care of. The, that Borg queue who that decimated everything at Wolf three five nine. Right. The Borg don't show back up again for quite some time. Right. And so, and then of course, Cisco also goes on his path to healing himself. So he is no longer that angry rage monster that the Defiant would, Have you know, served. is kind of yeah. yeah. And so now they, but now there's a new need, and we kind of see this this fire kind of coming back to Cisco. He is ready to step forward and take charge and do something again. And he needs some muscle to back him up. And it's not just his crew anymore. Right. He's not got this ship, but now the ship needs to be tempered the way the man himself has become tempered. Right. And so they need to work that out. So, I mean, it's a great, you know, analogy. I, I love the, <laughs> the, the visual, the imagery. Yeah. If you really follow along with all of it, but I mean, when this stuff initially aired in, in the nineties, I was not aware of any of that. I'm not going to try to make it sound like I was clued in, from day one. This is me having watched this show a bajillion times and right. I've grown up and gone through my own experiences and so forth. And I can kind of see that and see that parallel. And I love it. And I think that's why as much as I love the Enterprise D, the Defiant always is like, it, it, it changes week to week. Which <laughs> one is my, which one is my favorite ship? You know, gotcha. cause there's so much, you know, the Enterprise D is so elegant and so, you know, graceful and all this stuff. But the Defiant, man, she's a bruiser. Yeah. She's ready for a fight, and I love it, you know. Yeah. So. Well, what's so great about the Defiant, too, is, like, you know, it was, it was smaller, faster kind of ships that destroyed the the ship last episode, the, the Galaxy class. I don't remember the name of it at the moment. Um, the Odyssey. Odyssey. And so it makes sense that, like, okay, we need something 
on the par level with that. And so we got a smaller ship that can cloak and it is super powerful. Like, hey, wait a minute, this ship might be whatever it is necessary to fight the Dominion. And again, we lose it, or at least it's severely damaged in the first episode. I was surprised that they really went there. Like this episode yeah. actually ended on more of a cliffhanger than the season finale last episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um and Absolutely. It, and it's funny too, because they open this se- this season up, this episode up with you know recap of the last episode and, and now the continuance. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. I kind of figured like it was kind of done for now. Like, you know, we're just gonna go back to normal for a bit. No, we jump straight into the deep end with this episode. Um And again, we can crom we can we can give great praise and credit for that uh masterstroke there to Ronald D. Moore. Right. Who, you know, that beca- kind of became his bread and butter is is serialization. Right. And and developing story arcs right and that this is the man who definitely said you know uh two-parter yeah hold my beer and he's like <laughs> no here's here's six episodes that you must watch in order or else none of this makes sense like Gosh. that that became his thing you know right. um and of course we see that really kind of blown up when he moves on to Battlestar Galactica which is really it's just one long episode <laughs> like if you <laughs> that show is just really from season one to season four it's just right. one episode like that's that's all right so yeah, I mean, a lot of great changes were implemented here in season three, um, which carry on for the rest of the season or right. the rest of the series, really. Not just the season, but the series. Um, they okay. laid a lot of groundwork here. We see we we've been given so much information, like from the karma and their connection and who the administrators are uh, of the Dominion. We know that's the the Vorta, which you know we've we've seen them, but we didn't know it was them until, you know, we kind of put that stuff together. Um, we know that the Jem'Hadar have listing posts and relay stations and things like that all over the, the uh, Gamma Quadrant. We see a Romulan for the first time on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I'm going to talk she's about the that. First, she's the first Romulan that we've got on the on the uh, show. Yeah. So there's a lot of great developments here that add layers of complexity, which really demand that we um that we watch yeah now before we depart from our conversation about the defiant i do want to say there's another little backstory i love sharing these with you um (laughs) the defiant was actually supposed to be named the valiant when ron moore came on board and pitched the idea of the ship and the design and everything else he had originally named it the valiant however they immediately shot the name down and so, but the thing is, they shut the name down and then didn't tell him. And so then when he was trying to, you know, kind of pitch it again and everything else, they were just like, no, no V names. You can't do V names. And so they decided to go with the Defiant as a callback to the original series when there was another starship called the Defiant on uh, with, with Kirk and all those guys. Okay. Very briefly, but that was the... That was why they decided to call it the Defiant as kind of like a small Easter egg tribute to the original, um, show. the original show. But of course, it kind of stuck with people as to why we can't do V names for ships or anything like that. And that's because some 12 episodes later, a new show would be launched called Star Trek Voyager. And they didn't want two ships with the V names to be around. So that's <laughs> why. I was like, I don't know why I just didn't tell the man you can't do that because we got to the show in the works. But, <laughs> you know, but I guess everything has to be so secretive, you know, back then. Didn't want anything slipping out or whatever. But Apparently that was not. why. Yeah. <laughs> but that is why there is no 
no Valiant at the time. That's why it became uh, Defiant because right. Voyager was was on deck and right. they didn't want any anything to be in any way comparing or right. mixed up. So yeah, that's pretty pretty funny. But yeah, if as as we continue to talk about Defiant, um, the one thing that I was really surprised by and I, it kind of took me some time to swallow the idea was the. Romulan sending one of their own with the cloaking device. I remember mm-hmm. in the you know TNG show, it's a big deal that the Federation doesn't have cloaking devices. Yes, it's it a part of the treaty they have with the Romulans. The Treaty of Algernon. Yeah, it specifically says that the Federation will not develop that technology, which is an interesting you know give by the Federation because that's how the the Romulans get away with half the stuff they're doing is because they're always cloaked. Now, of course, the um, uh, the, uh, the the Klingons have cloaked ships, and so there's a great episode of TNG where you know they they you know the the, the the Enterprise crosses their you know neutral zone or whatever it is to go explore something, and um, they uh, confront a Romulan ship, and like another Romulan ship uncloaks, and then two Klingon ships uncloak, and it's you know it's a show of firepower by the Federation that the Klingon alliance can back them up you know they have cloaking devices so while the federation so, may not have it directly they at least have uh you know allies to do yeah so there is a lot of backstory in history in regards to cloaking devices why the federation doesn't have it and so forth and so let's first start with out of universe why the star why starfleet does not have cloaking technology because it's and too it's based- awesome to show a miniature going around doing awesome things and cloaking <laughs> it looks bad is it is that it <laughs> no it's because our the creator gene roddenberry said that it was against the philosophy of starfleet that Ooh. starfleet was not in the habit of skulking about and conducting its business right. starfleet was very transparent very forward-facing and accepted responsibility for their actions it basically saying that if you use the cloak you were you were less than reliable honorable trustworthy so forth and so on right, right. Now there are, now going all the way back to the original series, there were incidences, like you said, that involved the cloaking device. Um, there was a time when um, Kirk attempted to steal a cloaking device to study it, and uh, this is also <laughs> against again against said treaty. Um, and it was the episode is called the Enterprise Incident, where Kirk is surgically modified to look like a Romulan. They sneak on board a Romulan ship, and he attempts to steal this cloaking device. Meanwhile, while this happens, Spock seduces the commander of that um, uh, Romulan ship in order to basically kind of distract her while all of this stuff is going on. Oh, man. I haven't seen the original series, so imagining Spock trying to seduce someone is an interesting visual, I must say. (laughs) So, so while I know there's a lot of people who have watched like Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and so forth, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of how we treat and view the original series. This is one of the few episodes of the original series that I feel like is always worthy of a watch. It's, it's, I feel like it's done very well, especially for a 60s um, era television show right it 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 depends less on setting and prop and more on story so i think that's why it holds up so well right. we've got a lot of subterfuge who's doing what who is really betraying whom a lot of that's what's going on here um so if you ever get the time and you can and watch an episode of the original series 
this is one that I always recommend to people. The Enterprise Incident, it was in Season 3 um, as well. Yeah, so here we go. Season 3 of Deep Space Nine, Season 3 <laughs> of the original series. Maybe there's just something about Season 3 episodes. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's actually, it's a really well done episode. So go watch it if you ever get the chance. Of course, you can do that on Paramount Plus, where all uh, Trek is. Um, also, as you remarked about the Romulan ships, um, in the in the original series, it's also established that Romulan ships and Klingon ships, um, to a certain degree, look the same. They were similar, and now there was some. There's there's a lot of things that talk about like back history there, where at some point the Romulans and the Klingons did have some kind of treaty, which is later violated, and why, and that's why the Romulans and Klingons are enemies throughout much of the 24th century. But a lot of their initial technology, cloaking devices, ship designs, things like that were shared between the two of them for a bit. So you will find that weird kind of overlap, especially if you go back and watch the original series and you see certain things there, they're going to be similar. Right. Um, So, yeah. And so then we have the treaty, which is why the Federation doesn't have cloaking technology. But then we see this treaty brought up once again in the original series, when not the original series, but Next Generation, when Riker's former commander of the Pegasus comes back aboard trying to rescue the Pegasus because right. they had developed cloaking technology against the treaty there. Right. So cloaking technology is very much ingrained in much of Trek. And I think that's why now here on D space nine, when they're partnering up with the Romulans for this thing, why they would send a Romulan officer to kind of safeguard the tech. Yeah. Cause while Starfleet tries to present itself as being all honorable and whatever else, there are instances in Starfleet's past of officers being like, nah, screw that. We're going <laughs> to steal it. Or we're going to develop it on our own. So, yeah. 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 So that's why Tyrol is here. It's less to just be our our cloaking device operator and more to be like, as she, as she proved, the only armed one on the bridge to shoot somebody <laughs> yeah. in case they get a little too handsy with the cloaking device. Yeah, where's Worf when you need him, right? <laughs> oh, where is old Worf? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, where, where's Worf? Yeah. Well, <laughs> We'll Security see. officer uh, on a ship. Uh, we might uh, uh, look for that. <laughs> maybe that's what happens. Maybe we finally just need to get us a security officer who's worth their salt because yeah. everybody else just sucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Odo is already out. Let's bring in someone else. Um, yeah, the reason I thought it was weird that you know she would come along is like, well, the Romulans were always super aggressive with the Federation. They're always like, like they're always sneering and they're always you know just always like, ah, oh, the Federation sucks. They're stupid and they're terrible and like. They're just always sneering at everybody. And so for them to be like, oh, yeah, we're going to put our technology that we explicitly told you you can't even develop on a ship that's yours. But then, oh, no, the reason we're doing it is because they can only use it in the Gamma Quadrant and it's going to be operated by one of our people. So part of me is like it kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, the Federation takes all the risk. We take a minor risk overall. I mean, think about it from Romulan's perspective. The – the Federation probably could or does or at least could, you know, get, again, the the Klingons to give them cloaking technology. So why don't we plant one of our officers on a Federation ship in the Gamma Quadrant to operate the cloaking technology? And so while we might be giving up cloaking technology, we're gaining just as much information the other way around. And again, the Federation is taking all of the heavy risk of going into you the know. Gamma Quadrant. So it actually kind of makes sense. 
my initial Dude. thought was it didn't, but as I think about it, I'm like, okay, actually, maybe it does. So, you yeah. raise an interesting point, and it's one I hadn't really considered before. Why didn't they ask the Klingons? Now, while no, that's, that's time, exactly they... what I thought at first. Actually, I should say that. That's why I was like, why isn't yeah. a Klingon operating a cloaking device of some kind or or whatever? Well, if, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it would have made way more sense for them to go to the Feder- to the Klingons instead of the Romulans because right. the relationship between the Federation and the Klingons has been way more amicable oh, over the, over the history. Yeah. Right now, now. I believe there's only there are there's only the Kittimer Accords um, are the only real um, like treaty or anything like that that they have with uh, the Klingons at this time. There hasn't been anything else, but the Kittimer Accords were a pivotal part of establishing their relationship, right. and we see that in um, we see basically their signing and the the enacting of the Kittimer Accords with the original series crew right. in their final movie, the sixth film that featured them. The Undiscovered Country, that's what that whole movie is about, is the summit that leads to the Kittimer Accords. We see all throughout uh, Next Generation, um, Klingons and them having a, you know, not not even a love-hate relationship. It's, it's It's kind of tense at times, but on multiple occasions, the Federation is called in to facilitate and mediate things going on within the Klingon Empire, and Picard in particular um, handles a lot of this stuff and gains a lot of respect and notoriety with the Klingons. Um, So, yeah, it seems like they've done enough to curry pretty good favor. I don't know why they wouldn't have gone to the Klingons first. So, it's just like... uh, The only thing I could think is that the Klingons are less, you know, let's go and investigate... And they're more like we will wait, and if if we encounter a threat, we will respond to the threat. Right. We're not going to go out and just be looking around and poking and prodding. Whereas right. the Romulans are more into subterfuge and espionage. Right. So for them, a fact finding mission, gathering information, things like that, that is more of their alley. Right. So it might be that the Klingons were like, "This sounds kind of cowardly. Why not just get a fleet of ships and go into the Gamma Quadrant and show them and blow everything what? to hell?" Right. And what's and funny like, too, because in the last episode, the one uh jim hadar guy was like ah, i really want to meet a klingon and then right. this was your chance <laughs> so i mean maybe that was maybe that's cisco's point because it's like he even says we're not here to fight the founders right. we're not here to fight the dominion right they want to establish a dialogue first and that's always the federation they always want to talk to you first right you know um so maybe that was the point here it was like the the romulans would agree more to that method of of action because it would give them information and as you said it would cost them very little if anything happened if something went wrong they would lose one cloaking device and one officer they've got millions of both they don't it doesn't really matter right so the only only explanation I can come up with why the Federation would choose a Romulan as the person they would go to to get a cloaking device is like if the Federation is trying to honor the treaty and they are because we know that their Federation does try to honor their treaties Maybe they – it's just like they go to the Romulans to say, hey, look, we need cloaking technology. We're not going to go under your back and try and develop it. We need you guys to give it to us in this Gamma Quadrant. And they probably pitched the whole idea of like, yeah, we're going to be the ones that are sending taking our ship. All the it's risk, be our right. people. We're taking all the risks. Yeah, and you get all of the benefit of us being the frontline people that yeah. have to contend with this. Um, and you can take all the information back home and protect yourselves if something comes up. Uh, but we we want the cloaking technology in order to be successful here. And this again was all originally set up with the Borg, so it probably was mm-hmm. like back when the Borg were a problem. It's like, hey guys, uh, 
We need yeah. to, we need to work together at least on this one thing. So let's get together and make it happen. Um, of course, hey, again, you're, you're right. You're you're right. It's probably it probably would have played a lot into the to the Romulans' way of thinking that the Federation is constantly going out there and finding these new species, and this is a great way for us to gather information. They've just and the, and the, and it's and the information is twofold because one they get not only information about this new threat, the Dominion, and so forth, but now they get to also plan an officer on this experimental warship that the Federation has designed. Right. Federation's never done warships before. Even Kira says that. Right. Federation doesn't believe in warships, so to suddenly have one, and then you get front row access. We're going to yeah. put an officer on your bridge. Yeah. What better place to get a bunch yeah. of info on a new enemy and an old one, right. and it costs us nothing. Yeah, the Federation... So, yeah. yeah, it seems like the Federation has lost a lot, but they... It, it it I let me put it this way I can as I just explained I I think I can work out an in universe explanation for why this happened yeah, even yeah. though my initial thought was like I don't know why it'd be this way which I love I think that's great the show is actually nuanced enough and these yes, characters absolutely. are able to work that way yeah it's pretty See, cool David you don't even realize it but you're you're coming over to my way of thinking <laughs> like. I wouldn't be surprised if by the time we get to season four, you're going to be you're going to be so on board with me. Here. We're going to be campaigning about why Deep Space Nine is the greatest Star criminally Trek. underrated Star Trek yeah. ever. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I, and there's only one other thing I really want to quickly talk about, I guess, and that's the. Um, yeah. And if we have anything else to talk about, we can talk about it. But if uh, everyone got a glow up, Quark got a glow up. His suit was fantastic. I love oh, his yeah. suit. It's so colorful and like gaudy it's perfect for cork it looks fantastic um in that scene where he has to kiss the grand Nagus's staff i can understand why armin shimmerman might not like having to do it but that scene with cisco like when he that that final moment when cork has left and cisco looks out after him and he's got that quirky smile on his mm-hmm. face he looks hilarious it's like uh it, it seems as that avery brooks was just having the time of his life at that moment i don't know if it's the it character really or the actor but the, it was great <laughs> it was probably both it was probably both just to make to you know kind of bring quirk low just a little bit you know i think that they he really enjoyed it, even though, like we said, you know, Armin did not. And, you know, Armin really takes his portrayal of Klingons, or not Klingons, but uh, Ferengi very seriously. Yeah. You know, he's kind of the front runner on the Ferengi development. He played one of the first uh, Ferengi that we see in Next Generation. Right. He then kind of really goes leaps and bounds with the development here on Deep Space Nine. And so you can see that that's really kind of near and dear to him. And I think anything that kind of makes them seem you know, less than in any way or, or, or like they're being exploited in any way right. really just bothering him. Yeah. So I, you know, knowing that as much as I appreciate that scene, knowing that I'm glad that it didn't go any further than that. The little kiss and then the run out was yeah. fine with me. Yeah. Well, actually I also want to say that I like the idea, like part of it is again, it was like what the grand Nagus would send his staff just to get Quark to go to the Gamma Quadrant, but then if you remember in the last episode where we had the Grand Nagus, he was all about getting into the Gamma Quadrant. Actually, both mm-hmm. both episodes, like that's his thing. We gotta get to the Gamma Quadrant. So the idea that he would like you know send his staff as his personal like seal of approval on this mission, give it to you know a human, a human of all people, um, to make sure that Quark obeys. Actually, it made sense. Again, it was one of those moments that I first was like, wait a what? And then I thought, I was like, no, actually the Grand Nagus was pretty yep. serious about this Gamma Quadrant thing, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we 
have said what, <laughs> but we are going to have to wrap this up because we're going to start complaining. Um, you know, we've been talking about, but again, with this show, it's just, it's, there's so much. And obviously there's just so many things we can continue to talk about here. And this is only part one. We still have part two. So um, tune in. We're going to have to have you guys obviously come back, tune in next week and enjoy this with us as we get into more of this. But before we wrap it up, David, any final thoughts on the search? Part one. Part one. Yeah, I, I. It was a great way to start a season. I again, I feel like we really, like it. It feels like now we are hitting our stride. Like whatever this, whatever it is we were looking for, it's it's here. It's arriving. It's it's if it's not yet here, it's only because this opening episode was different than usual. It's not. It doesn't feel like Deep Space Nine almost because it's not like just something on the station. Like we're actually actively going. Yeah, just yeah. I've said it okay. before. I've said it a million times. So, <sighs> well, and as I've said, we are getting there. This third season is really the launching point for everything that is about to come next in the rest of the series. So you, if you weren't paying attention that much in season one to season two, you definitely need to be paying attention now. Yes, there will still be callbacks to the other two seasons, as we have already discovered. Move Along Home is going nowhere. It will be back to visit us pretty much every season. So just stay tuned for those references. Um, but yes, um, also, since we talked about it as well, the movie Generations, it came out in November of 94, and it was it was about 10 episodes into season three when that when that movie finally came out. So that would I if you wanted to follow chronologically anyway, that would be the time to watch that movie. But I still say just wait until the end of season three okay. and then watch the Generations movie. And then when we start season four, you'll be you'll have everything you need. OK, okay you'll be you'll be good to go. Got it. OK. All right. Yeah, we'll wait till the end of the season. So we got what twenty six episodes this season, so twenty five yes. more to go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But as always, guys, it was great talking with you all about um, and having you listen to us as we went on and on about Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, one of my favorite shows. Here, you can of course find us and follow us on any platform where you listen to uh, podcasts. I happen to do it on Spotify. In addition to that, you can listen and will follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where we post a bunch of stuff about this show and others. So, if you want to continue the conversation with us or join in those will be the places to do it. And of course, you can find us as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. But until next week, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys.